Today is Sunday, August 30th, 2020. The message this morning is called 70 Sons of Samaria. We're excited for a multiplicity of reasons this morning. The first is, many of your faces came to us in prayer over the last few days. Amen. And we're happy to see you here. We've had a chance to meet with the king and him meet with us. I mean, sometimes you pray and you are hoping he hears. And other times you pray and he visits you. Amen. Today is going to be the latter and not the former. But there's another reason that I'm excited today. On Wednesday, the 26th, my seventh grandchild, Jehu, was born. Now, I'm a grandpa now, and we're going to take a minute to look at that little guy. All right, everybody say, isn't he cute? Mom and I are very excited. You know, I once was sitting up on the stage here not that long ago. I think uh, Brother Linton just said the original LCN kid, and that is the reality. I'm a son of this house. Now, God has been kind to me. And I have four sons of my own in my house now. As we said earlier, these are momentous times. They're momentous times because we are living in a day where God is preparing us for future battles. They're surely ahead of us. They're in our future. I feel the fires of my own heart being kindled this morning. I don't know about you, but there's a kind of excitement and tension in the air that I can feel. And it's because God wants to do something among us. Our message today is unashamedly aimed at radical, supernatural transformation that carries generational momentum without losing any integrity, power, or holy passion. Hallelujah. Our message is intended to span generations and continents. We want to get right to the scripture with you this morning. This morning we're going to build on previous concepts that we've been given, and I would like to review just a couple. We've been learning about seven facets of repentance because God wishes for us to know how to do it well. He wants us to enter into his throne room. Seven stations of the tabernacle that complete the picture for us, that show us what it's like to be a man on the outside that has the ability to reach the throne of God. And the benefits of sowing godly actions so that you can be sure you reach a harvest of righteousness. Come on, are you ready to jump into the scripture? Yeah. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 7. We're going to touch on the 1st through 10th verses. Somebody give us a war cry when you get there. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's war crying training right there. Luke 7 and verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus. Come on, man, that sounds like what happens at the gates of praise, where you hear of the greatness of God and are drawn to him. And sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this. Because 
He loves our nation and has built our synagogue. For a Roman centurion to identify with Israel like this means that something is happening, kind of like at a brazen altar. Yeah. There's an identity that is fading into the background and a new one that is coming to the surface. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. It's funny how his assessment of himself was not like their assessment of him. That is why I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. This is like a man who is at the labor. He knows he's not worthy, and yet he finds himself staring at the very image of God. Not worthy, and yet God is going to make him worthy. Listen to this phrase. It's an important one. But say the word. Oh, come on. Man, this is like entering in the tabernacle, staring at the menorah, saying, Speak to me, Spirit of God! And my servant will be healed. This is what happens when you go to the table of the bread of the presence of the Lord. Healing, wholeness, confirmation of everything that the Spirit said to you. For I myself, for I myself am a man under authority. With soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. Amen. This is what happens at the golden altar of intercession. You're a man under authority in right relationship with God. And when you speak, you are commanding authority because it's flowing from the throne of God right through you. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you the truth. I've not found such great faith even in Israel. This is like a man that has reached the ark throne of God. He may not have had great faith, but after experiencing this, he is a man of great faith. Amen. He worked through the process of the tabernacle and he arrived at the very throne of God. There's so many things we could tell you about this passage. But I want to summarize those steps for you quickly. You can see each of the verses and the phrases. He walks through the gates of praise to the brazen altar at the laver. He, at the menorah, asks the Spirit to speak. At the table of presence, he finds direction in healing. And he ends up a man of authority at the golden altar and arrives at the throne. We could talk about these things endlessly, but that's kind of the last few weeks of messages. (laughs) We could also talk about the topic of the centurion's concern for his servant. We could talk of his love for Israel, his sacrificial benevolence towards Israel, his friendship with the Jewish elders, his humility. We could talk about the way all of those things are seeds of righteousness that he sowed, And how the man reaped a healing harvest of victory and faith. But that was Wednesday's service. We don't have time to go back through those things. There are other things that we have for you today equally impacting. So saints, the area that we want to emphasize with you today is the sixth step. That he was a man under authority with soldiers under him. This centurion understood how the kingdom of God works. 
He was living under authority, and it allowed him to flow in great authority. To be entrusted with supernatural power in this house, you must perfect working under authority first. Yes. Yes. Today, we are largely going to focus on a character in the Bible named Jehu. Jehu! Jehu was a man who received authority, walked in authority, and commanded authority. Yeah. All this was because of a supernatural transformation in his life. But much like the centurion's great faith, it started by obeying a singular word from God. Our sermon about Jehu actually begins with a prophet named Elijah in 1 Kings 19. We're going to go back to the source of supernatural authority. This morning, we are going to see where it comes from. Turn with me to 1 Kings 19, verse 14. When you get there, yell out, Jehu! Amen. Verse 14. He replied, I, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I, I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. No, it's Elijah who said this, but if I'm honest, every pastor I've known has said this at some point. So as every father and mother with toddlers. Who gave the kid a sword? (laughs) Look, verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel king over Aram. Man, I believe God's going to do something special in us today. I also find it hilarious that the majority of the time that he speaks to us or speaks someone into the word... It's go back to what I already told you to do. Has that not been a common theme in our lives? Will you feel the presence of God and he revisited what he already told you to be doing? If this is true of Elijah, it's true of us. It's equally ironic that like Elijah, how many times we're concerned with our own plight. I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me. Well, the solution is always what we do to put others on better footings. Watch what happens in these coming verses. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nifshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abiel Mehulah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. The answer to Elijah's concern, the answer to Elijah's perceived failure, was to anoint others with what he had been given. One of the men that Elijah was going to anoint would be a warrior king named Jehu, who would cleanse the house of Israel with a sword. The other man that Elijah is to anoint is Elisha, a man who would carry twice the mantle, authority, and anointing that Elijah himself had carried. Talk about a solution to your problems. Somebody who is twice as capable as you. Verse 18. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. All whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Not only was Elijah's complaint answered by anointing other men. The Lord of glory. Where are you at, Carlos? The Lord of glory. 
Jehovah. He uh, he wanted Elijah to know something. Yeah. Your original assumption was wrong. I'm the only one. See, so many times this has been my case. Focused on my own scenario, focused on nobody else is doing it right, and feeling like you're the only one that cares about righteousness in this situation. Adonai wanted him to know that was a long way from being true. He had reserved for himself men who cared every bit as much as Elijah did, and there were 7,000 of them. Elijah just may not know who they are. Friends, God's will is going to get done. The only question is, through whom it gets done? That's a good word. Saints, as we turn to 2 Kings 9, verse 6, I want to fill in a little background detail for you. Elijah, he did indeed anoint Elisha, the man who had a sevenfold blessing of the anointing that carried on the prophet's ministry. You know, he didn't anoint Jehu. You know, his protege, his successor, Elisha, didn't anoint Jehu either. We're going to get all the way down to a disciple of a disciple. That is a young, nameless prophet that is going to come up. That is the one that does it. But it really calls to mind something for us. So many times God speaks to us something. And we're like, yeah, that's for me. I'm going to see it, Lord. I'm looking forward to this happening. When the reality is God is calling us to set things in motion that we may tirelessly labor towards and not see the fruit of until it's two generations down the line. But God has given us a faith that can last those generations, just like the prophets. Look, as we pick up in 2 Kings 9, we're picking up with that, not Elijah, not Elisha, but the nameless prophet who was a disciple of Elisha. That's where we're starting. Are y'all ready? Somebody yell, Jehu! Jehu! 2 Kings 9, 6. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. Man, it says a prophet. When I hear the word prophet, I think of a lot of things. I think of men like Elijah, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah. Men who could look at the clouds because they understood God's will and said, Rain or do not rain. But a prophet is a bit of an understatement here. He's not just a prophet. He's one sired for ever-increasing power. One in a line of prophets that showed up to anoint Jehu. This is a culmination. Look, think through this. Because you're already starting to look like, ah, oh, there's a lot of names coming. And, and uh, three generations of anointing went into the anointing of Jehu. One God had been working through Elijah, through Elisha, and now through a nameless prophet, all for one purpose, to raise up this man. This is something akin to your grandfather giving your father a prophecy that manifests in your life that there's a singular man you're going to meet that you must disciple. What a moment. Now, I want you to call your attention to a part of this verse again. I anoint you king over the Lord's people. See, Jehu would be king, and he was the chosen king. But the people belonged to the Lord. And the Lord would be the one to direct the new king and how to deal with his people. Israel has never stopped being his people, no matter who ruled over them. 
Most everything we're going to talk about today is about an original source of authority, a man under that authority and operating in the authority you were given and investing that authority into others. But I want to go to verse 7. Are y'all with me? Yes. Somebody yell Jehu! Jehu! You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master. Mm. <laughs> that doesn't start to move your heart. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. Right. The consequences of righteousness and wickedness, they affect everyone. And I'm thankful for consequences that God has brought about and both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. These words were spoken long before Jehu was ever anointed. Elijah had declared that this would happen when he was anointed two generations prior. Like the centurion, Jehu would understand authority. Elijah was given the word. Elisha carried the word. Yeah. Then we have a young man that ultimately, by the third generation, is delivering this word to Jehu who would carry it out. Look, there's a truth here that we want you to grab hold of. It's why I wanted so many of you to be here today. Both your anointing and the work that was prepared for you in advance to do, it existed before you. Yes. You're only discovering the goodness of what your father has always had in store for you. It's been waiting. The beginnings of your authority must be derived from him. Amen. It must be attested to by other men who can see it. And it has to manifest in the authority that you endow others with. It was waiting for you before you were born. You receive it from the Father. You walk in it and you pass it to other people. That is what the kingdom is like. And Jehu's life is going to teach us about it. Verse 9. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah, as for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel. Get it, girl. No one will bury her. Ah! Then he opened the door and he ran out. When Jehu went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked him, is everything all right? Why did this maniac come to you? Oh, you know the man and the sort of things he says, Jehu replied. That's not true, they said. Tell us. Come on now. Jehu had hung out on the wrong side of things. None of you should be able to relate to that. He and his friends were something like mercenaries, soldiers of fortune, and they're working for a condemned man. Ahab and Jezebel have already been prophesied against. They're devilish. And these guys, Jehu and his friends, are working for them. And how did his friends speak openly about the prophet? I mean, they didn't hide it at all. What they call him? I'm not talking about the flash dance kind of maniac. I'm not talking about the manwitch commercial. You know, maniac. Brandon, where you at? You know, I'm talking about they thought the prophet was insane. That means this is a position that Jehu likely had five minutes before his encounter with the prophet. Despite the fact that Jehu tried to play it off as if nothing had happened, Despite the fact that the physical appearance of the prophet looked like a maniac, they could realize, they could see, Jehu had now had a divine encounter. He had been anointed. 
He had been given a mission. A mission generations into the making. Declared in the word of God, something had interacted with him that is drawing their interest. Look, it is abundantly clear from this text. His friends could tell something had changed. When he walked out of the house, they could see it. Jehu was perceivably different. Jehu was no longer the same man. Let's hear the reaction. Jehu said, here is what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. Whatever was different about Jehu, it was obvious. It was dramatically impacting. It was supernatural. Something about it wasn't the norm. Yeah. How else could you explain the reaction of friends that have known him for years, that have fought side by side with him, and they saw the man walk out from meeting with the prophet, and suddenly things were different? Jehu tried to steer this in a different direction. But like Jeremiah that would come later, it was fire shut up in his bones that could not be hidden. He didn't have to open his mouth. The moment that he walked out, they could see something was happening in him. It was the furthest thing from a private matter. A matter he would pray about and contemplate. Jehu's transformation was instant because it was real. Something had happened to him and the whole world could tell. Not some slow warming to the reality of the kingdom, but an actually changed life. A radical, supernatural transformation. Look, I don't know whether his face was glowing. I, I don't know about that. But I know that he was dripping with the anointing oil of God. Yes. I know that he had been given a mission that didn't spring from his own imagination. I know that his anointing and his mission were in agreement with the word of God and were derived from the origin of all authority. Yeah. This kind of supernatural conversion is compelling. It serves to create momentum. You can see how his friends reacted when they saw the genuine article. When they could perceive it, they had to react to it. I want to contrast this ever so slightly with the kind of conversions that we're used to seeing. The weak, emaciated, impotent, following somebody else's prayer. I'll work on the low-hanging fruit in my life and work my way up to bigger things. Why do we expect somebody to be a dog for their first years in them? I expect, God expects a supernatural, dramatic Amen. conversion. He gives missions from on high that consume a man. They create momentum. They move everyone around them. And we should settle for nothing less. I'm done with this idea of, oh, well, we just need to give him time. No, when he gets hit with a lightning bolt from God, you will not need to give him time. You might be confused in training a goat to pretend to be a sheep otherwise. Jehu was so different that everybody around him had to react to it. Now, we are starting to get the engine turned over here. And there's a lot of names that are involved in these passages. They're somewhat difficult. And we need you to be able to keep a frame of reference in your train of thought about the family line of Jehu. So I want to show that to you for just a second. At the top is Nimshi. Sometimes Jehu is called son of Nimshi. But in reality, Nimshi is the grandfather. Jehoshaphat is the father of Jehu. 
Jehu is going to have sons coming in our teaching. Jehoahaz and Jehoash, and after that, another one named Zechariah. These notes will be there on the screen for you uh, throughout our message. We're going to pick up in 2 Kings 9 and verse 14. So you should be right where you were just a few verses later. Are you ready? ready. Somebody yell Jehu. Jehu. Hey, do you want to see something supernatural today? Yeah. I want to assure you from God that we are going to. Because we heard it from Him in prayer, and we are partnering with Him in what He wants to do in this room today. And thankfully, He already spoke to us about many of your lives. Are you ready? So Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired. I am not sure I like that word, conspired. The Strong's number is 7194. The Hebrew word is kwashar. It's also translated bind, revolt, rise up. But anyway... Against Joram. Now Joram and all Israel had been defending Ramoth Gilead against Hazel, king of Aram. Yep. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him in battle with Hazel, king of Aram. To not get lost in these names, you're going to remember a few things. Elijah anointed Elisha, who raised up a prophet to anoint Jehu. To exterminate Ahab's line. Y'all remember that? Joram is the king of Israel and he is Ahab's line. There is another person mentioned here that we didn't talk about but is from 1 Kings 19. That person is Hazel, king of Aram. He was mentioned in 1 Kings 19 as being anointed by Elijah in order to weaken Ahab's line. So he's an enemy power who is going to move against Israel to weaken the line. And the idea is Jehu would come in and wipe it out. Think about what this means. This means that God can use a lost foreign power to achieve his will. And he can raise up an anointed spirit-filled son soldier to do his will. And he can cause the two to work together. Somebody say that's a big God. That's a big God. Let's continue in 15. Jehu said, if you desire to make me king, don't let anyone slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then he got into his chariot and he rode to Jezreel because Joram was resting there and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had gone down to see him. Now, I know every one of you, absolutely, when you heard the word conspire, you thought of positive, godly, warm, fuzzy traits, right? No. Yeah, no, the word conspire to us means that we're conniving a plan that is wicked. I think think of people with tinfoil hats hiding in their basements, you know, muttering. Or perhaps a politician on election day. I don't know what you think about, but it wasn't positive when you heard that word. The reason my father commented on it is because it is not negative in this case. It is entirely positive because it is directed by the Lord. Also, I want you to note as we build with this. He didn't say to have a council in a smoke-filled room somewhere and debate about how he was going to get to Jehoram. He wasn't muttering and whispering with people about his disenfranchisement or how hard it's been to have him as king. And really, really, we should overthrow this oppressor. He was not a conspirator. He got up. He took action. Yeah. He got to the root of the problem. The moment that God spoke, he got in the chariot and started driving that way. He said, perhaps we would spend less time Processing problems 
and talking over things that the Lord has already spoken, things that He's previously directed, and just get in the chariot, we might be able to see God build some momentum in our personal life and personal walk. Jehu wasted no time. His conspiring was him hearing from the Holy Ghost, deciding to obey it, speaking to the men what they needed to do, and that was the extent of the discussion. Look, to keep our players straight, Joram, the king of Israel. This is Ahab's diseased progeny. Okay, Joram's bad guy. Ahaziah, he's the king of Judah, and there should be nothing wrong with him. He's, he's the head of the Davidic side, except that he's social with Sodom. He's chummy with Gomorrah. In fact, Ahaziah's real problem is that he doesn't hate what God hates. He's friendly with it. Neither of these men are fit to hold the titles that they're being honored with because they do not walk in the authority of God. Oh, are you telling me that the wicked king that was condemned and a righteous king of Judah that's a son of David that could be in this house, could be in the temple of God, but is compromised, is under the same wrath of God? Yeah, we'll wait to see how his life ends up. Now, in light of that, notice Jehu's all-out mandate in regard to both of these kings. If you desire to make me king... Don't let anyone slip away. Nobody. There's so much to be said about this in our time. Jehu is not supposing more compassion than God. He's acting on God's behalf. Because he's a man of authority. He works under God's authority and knows how to stand in righteous authority. Man, when our battle lines get clear, it makes all the difference in the world. But a Christian who's anointed, maybe even one who's descendant from David himself, can be liable to destruction right alongside those that God has condemned to die because of your sympathy and compassion. But we're going to stand in the house of God and we're going to draw up our battle lines today, right? Look, I would ask you if you've ever deliberated something you know God told you. But I don't want to invite you to sin by not responding. In deliberating what God has already told you, I'm not going to ask you how many times you talked yourself out of it. Because again, I don't want you to become guilty. Instead, I simply want to draw your attention to one more thing before we leave. When you are thinking about your own motives, could it be that you want to show compassion to those who are under the judgment of God because you yourself are compromised in all the same ways and you feel guilty that you haven't been judged? You got away with it. God hasn't spoken judgment against you, so you are very nervous to carry out anything God said to do. You say things like, after all, we all sin. Yes, and some sin reaches the place of judgment. And you better learn to recognize that. That's something that we need to do in this house. When God says something, that should settle it. Amen? God says it. That settles it. it. Move forward and do it without apology in the authority of the Lord. Amen. It's not your authority. You're a man of authority because you're a man under authority. He tells you what to do. Stop renegotiating things God has already said. So we move forward. You're going to see the authority that Jehu operates in increasing and his momentum building as well. Verse 17 When the lookout standing on the tower in Jezreel saw Jehu's troops approaching, he called out, I see troops coming. Get a horseman, Joram ordered. 
Send him to meet them and ask, do you come in peace? The horsemen rode off to meet Jehu and said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? What do you have to do with peace? Jehu replied, fall in behind me. The lookout reported the messenger has reached them, but he isn't coming back. Jehu set out with such spiritual intensity that the king of Israel, Joram, sent out a horseman to determine Jehu's intentions. Now, the horseman in the ancient world was a formidable opponent on the battlefield, but not just in strength, but in who he represented. Something akin to what you would think of as a United Nations ambassador. He shows up and delivers the king's message, intentions, and authority. He attempted to question Jehu about his intentions to find out why that guy was so intense all of the time. Y'all have to be so serious all the time. So serious. Jehu didn't stop to explain his heart or acquiesce to the force. See, the messenger that was sent to him had authority, but it was the authority of a compromised king. He was riding with a different kind of authority. He didn't feel the need to explain his heart 35 times when he's quoting a scripture. He didn't feel the need to compromise and sit at a table and play nice for a little while because he was operating God's authority. Jehu essentially said, we have nothing to talk about. Get behind me or else. What do you have to do with peace? Get behind me. That's not exactly politically correct. You probably won't catch pretty Colgate pastors saying things like that. The truth is, this is how God's authority works. He's not of two opinions about anything. He's not particularly concerned that you might misunderstand his intentions. When he says something, he expects it to be done. Amen. In today's setting, everybody seems to be scared to be misunderstood. So much so that we all have to stop and have a faithless conclave to determine the veracity of what God has already said. Oh, that the spirit of Jehu would rise up a spirit of reckless abandonment of caution, a spirit of full determination to do exactly what the Lord said to do, to do it in speed or to die in the process. Amen. Look, I bet if we did, I bet if we acted more like this, when God said something, we immediately went out to do it. Some of the opposition would actually join us. They would do it out of admiration for our courage of conviction. Perhaps we should stop our faithless contemplation and aim at courage of conviction like men of authority because we are men operating under authority. Amen? Somebody say, Jehu. Jehu. Fall in behind me. Let's see how this story plays out. So the king sent out a second horseman. When he came to them, he said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? And Jehu replied, what do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. The lookout reported, he has reached them, but he isn't coming back either. The driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nishi. He drives like a maniac. Look, notice that this scenario is repeating. We didn't read the same passage twice. In the passage, this is happening twice. This is the enemy, and he's doing it because he's usually effective at it. Full-blown supernatural moves of God are stopped all of the time in families, 
stopped in cities, stopped in congregations, because those who are called of God forget that they only operate under the authority that God gave them. And they start wanting to be light. They want to avoid appearing harsh. Yeah. They, they don't carry out their commission because they lack the supernatural conviction that cannot be easily dissuaded. Man, do you really want to be dissuaded by a diseased diatribe of the dead and lukewarm? What does, what does Jehu have to talk with the compromised kings about? God has already spoken. But I'm just going to be honest with you. I know what you would want to do. I feel such compassion for them. I just want to see them saved. But God didn't. That God has not changed. See, you need to come to grips with there is no Old Testament God and New Testament God. This is one character of God. The authority that you have operates under His authority. He is to direct you. You are not allowed to assume His motives or worse yet, contradict His command because you esteem something differently than He did. Especially when it relates to nationality, to family, to somebody you like or don't like. Jehu received a mission and Jehu went after it. If you are of authority, it is because you are under authority. God makes the choice and we must not renegotiate them. Amen. Hey, do y'all remember what they called the prophet when he first came to Jehu? A maniac. They called the man a maniac. Now Jehu is being referred to in the exact same way. Oh my, when the Spirit of the living God so transforms a man that you look like the prophets of old, that the Spirit that was poured out upon you fills you to the point where you look like them. God had so transformed Jehu's life that he appeared crazed to the congregation of the compromised church. Saints, did Festus not tell Paul that he was out of his mind? Yeah, he did. Yes, yes, he was out of his mind. He was firmly in the mind of Christ. When a man is on a mission and he's not willing to compromise, you look crazed to the rest of the world. It is the highest honor for the enemies of God and the compromised calculating church to hate you and call you a maniac because you are in the mind of Christ. Listen, I want you to consider for just a moment, we're going to keep rolling. If they said that about the prophet, they said that about the man who heard the prophet's words and carried it out, why don't they say that about you? Is it because you're chummy with Sodom? It's because you're willing to sit and console with a compromised church? If they do not consider you a maniac like the prophets because you're so wholly devoted, then you are not participating in the kingdom. But those that are participating in the kingdom, we're going to be like Jehu and stir up our zeal in this house. Jehu wasn't walking with God. He was running with God, laboring, straining with every fiber of his being to finish the work that God assigned him. Like the centurion, he understood his orders must be obeyed and completed. May you be so fervent as to be reviled, persecuted, hated, or misunderstood for righteousness' sake and the zeal God has given you. Jesus called that position blessed. And if they think the prophet is a maniac, if they think Jehu is a maniac, what do they think of the prophet's God and Jehu's God whom they claim to worship? See, they don't know him. They don't know his character. And neither does most of the church world. 
Let's, let's pick up in verse 21. Are you ready? Yeah. Somebody yell, maniac! maniac! Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. And when it was hitched up, man, Joram's getting hitched. Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, rode out, each in his own chariot. Well, now I feel better about that. Mm. I was beginning to wonder about their ambiguously gay friendship here. Each in his own chariot to meet Jehu. Just to get this clear, it's two kings against one man that God has anointed. They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Wow. I want you to catch this because this didn't happen by chance. Elijah had prophesied about this very day because Ahab's family had stolen this piece of ground. In fact, they killed Naboth on it. If Jehu had stopped even for a moment, would they have met on this very piece of ground? See, the delay tactics of the enemy, Jehu wouldn't be stopped. He's like a juggernaut. He keeps going. If he had stopped to talk, if the two opposing armies are rushing towards each other, would they have met in the spot God told them to meet in? Fear, insecurity. Let me just say what I really mean. Faithlessness. It robs the believer of seeing the awesome supernatural providence of God. Men of authority walk under the authority of God. It's expressed like the centurion as great faith. God said it. That settles it. I will not renegotiate it. This church has a lot to learn about that. Amen. Verse 22. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound. This is now the third attempt to dissuade Jehu. Called to God, anointed, all of those things, and now this is the third time that something has happened to try to keep him off of mission. He didn't have any of it. The ESV here. Anybody got the ESV? It's a great translation. Two of you. Well, I'm not talking about the English Standard Version. I'm talking about the Eric Stevens Version. It it would read like this. How can there be be peace between us? I'm going to kill you and your mama. And he does. I mean, LL Cool J said, Mama said knock you out. Jehu said, I'm going to knock you and your mama out. This is the kind of intensity that the church needs to learn to pick up. When God said it, with all speed, I'm going after it. We're going to have to grow in our momentum, grow in our fervor, because every time we slow our pace, you're inviting missing the supernatural moment. Oh, come on. You know, I think we're going to work into this a little bit. So the Christian world at large, other churches in other places don't understand this. Do you agree? Yeah. All right. We're friends. We're family. We're grinding to a reality here that we are going to clinch with together. Most of you do not understand this principle. You're sitting in our seats, your seats now agreeing and saying amen. When the reality is you do not demonstrate this in your daily life. It's true. You must have clear lines of distinction. Where you're not even willing to consider the offer or hear it. Your constant efforts at conciliatory speech undermine your ability to complete the call or cause any effectual change in your life. You flounder in faithless arenas because they're family, they're friends, or the same national background, 
or because you have some kind of pet issue in common. Or you just want to be perceived as nice. You just want to be kind. You want to be like, can't we just be sweet? Saints, I need you to do this with me. I need something inside of you to rise up. Say no more peace. No more peace. No more peace. We are done making treaties with this world that are treachery towards God. We cannot allow those to exist in this house any longer. We know better, and God is stirring up a zeal in this house. He's stirring up a momentum. We are learning to operate under the authority that has been given to us and command with it. Look, I don't know whether we've appropriately scratched this scab or not yet. We are going to have to move on. If you're sitting there going, is is he talking about my scenario? Yes. 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 And that's true of almost all of you. You care more about what people think about you than God does. You say something different with your mouth, but your actions show you just want to be liked. You just want to be well-received. And I'm telling you, is it only a few of us that get to be hated by everybody while you enjoy the comfort of everybody's praise and popularity? Look, we represent God. It's really that simple. But now we're going to move on. Amen? Amen. Verse 23. Joram turned about and fled. Look, two kings facing Jehu. And Joram, the diseased progeny of Ahab, turns immediately and flees. Joram turned about and fled, calling out, Azahiah! Treachery! Azahiah! Treachery! Friends, this is not treachery. It's righteousness. It is the will of God. It is what was prophesied about two generations ago. God's judgment will not sleep forever, but people rarely recognize God's judgment as judgment when it's happening. Instead, they say, treachery! Everybody's being mean to me! I don't know why I'm being treated this way. But the host of heaven is saying, just and true are your judgments, O God. That's the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the diseased kingdom of men. And your authority comes from the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Verse 24 is a lot of fun. Yes. Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. There pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. Now that's good in and of itself, but it's missing several pieces to the puzzle. <laughs> we have a slide that we would like to show you. This is taken from an A.J. Rosenberg translation. You can also find it in the NASB. There we go, Bosch. You can also find it in the ESV and several other translations. And Jehu put all his strength into the bow. And he hit Jehoram between his arms and the arrow protruded from his heart. And he fell to his knees. Listen, there is nothing apologetic about the man who's under the authority of God. Jehu put all his strength into the bow. In this sense, Jehu's bow was acting as God's bow. But there's one more thing that we want to garner from this first. You're dealing with a sin problem. You've dealt with it, man. I'm talking to my pastor about it. I keep dealing with it. I keep trying to cut it down. Perhaps you have not actually put all your strength into it even once, and that's the reason it keeps recovering and coming back around. You put all your strength into your defense and your image, but not all your strength into closing those doors of sin. Well, I'm doing good. There's no equivocation in this verse. And Jehu put all his strength into his bow. Mm. He's not trying to mediate what God said. He's not trying to give a different version of it. He's putting everything that he has into it. There's no sinful sympathies. 
There's no carnal compromise in it. Jehu has had a radical transformation. Amen. Jehu was given radical supernatural mission. Yeah. It took three generations of prophets to bring about this moment. And three waves of opposition from the enemy couldn't stop this moment. Hmm. This is the way the church must learn to deal with sin, that it's reach the place of judgment. If Jehu had taken a different approach, then whatever he spared would ensnare the future generations. But he didn't. He eviscerated sin. He elevated righteousness. He ensured that the people of God had the opportunity to follow the Lord or die at the Lord's hand. And he left no middle ground. Neither should we. Amen. You know, Jehu had a habit of not only slaying sin, but desecrating it afterwards. Yeah, I got to be honest, since Judah was that age... These are the stories he liked to hear the most. He didn't say, tell me about Superman or read me, you know, a fairy tale. He wanted to hear about Jehu from a small child forward. Yeah. Spandex and Marvel comics are not cool. The Bible is. If your hero wears super tights, that's queer. Verse 25, Jehu said to Bidkar. I know that's going to be the, your next son's name, right? Bidkar. Come here, Bidkar. Just in case you were wondering, and you weren't just sitting in front of an encyclopedia and immediately knew what Bidkar meant, it means son of stabbing. The idea is that like he was born to be an assassin, and he's riding next to Jehu. Just interesting details. His chariot offer said, pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. Not enough to slay him. He had to be picked up and thrown where he belonged. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab, his father, when the Lord spoke this prophecy about him. Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now then, pick him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. Notice that Jehu didn't treat this as a tragedy, that somebody died and went to hell. But rather saw it as prophecy fulfilled. He wanted the body thrown into the field so that the people would associate the sin with the consequence. Yeah. I'm going to say that again. He wanted it thrown into the field so that they could associate the sinful action with the consequence. My, 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 the things that it would do for us. How much better off we would be if we could see the consequence of sin immediately. See, the thing that is dangerous in our life is we don't always see it right away. You might even be interacting with men that have the judgment of God upon their life and you just don't see it yet. Careful, Azahiah. Look, I, I can't help but notice here that Bidkar and Jehu were privy to the prophecy On Ahab's line. They heard it. They both say that they heard it. And yet, Jehu had been previously a soldier of fortune in Ahab's employ. See what we're saying about a radical transformation? Amen. This saves him. This saves Israel. Whereas Azahiah, the king of Judah, he should know better than this. He should, he should not be anywhere near it. He is going to die for no other reason than his friendship with a condemned man. See, that's not noble. There's nothing noble about it. You're actually siding against God for your friendship when you do that. Look, I bet... Do we have any real estate agents in the room? 
Thinking about yeah. this particular property transaction, you might handle property sales differently for a while. I mean, this whole thing is over. A man who had power wanting the property of a man who didn't have power, and when he wouldn't sell it, he killed him and took it. When you see the judgment of God in proximity to the consequence of it, when you can see the sin and the result of the sin, it causes the fear of God to grow. If you don't believe me, ask Ananias and Sapphira. Another little property transaction. Yeah? Verse 27. When Azahiah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, he fled up the road to Beth Hagen. Jehu chased him, shouting, Kill him too! <laughs> they wounded him in his chariot on the way up to Gur near Ibelim. But he escaped to meet Gido and died there. Doesn't the holiness of God demand that we carry out His commands with diligence? Yeah. If He is holy, if He is righteous, if He is altogether good, and all the things that you say when you need forgiveness, then isn't it equally true that He's holy, good, and righteous when He determines something that must be done even if you don't like it? Yeah. That's true. See, if He dictates mercy, so must we. Amen. But where He has determined judgment, who are we to argue with Him? We are men of authority only if we stand under His authority. So ask yourself, do you know what God says about a situation? Or are you operating under your own feelings of what is godly and what is not? Because that's what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is. We must operate under the authority of God. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about compromise with your friends, compromise with people that you like. I'm talking about what you allow in your life, what you watch on a TV, what you listen to on a radio, not from legalism. When we love things God hates, it destroys the courage of conviction. And it's pulling at all of us all of the time. I want a Jehu-like momentum to grow inside of us. Saints, this may be the saddest part of the story. We have a king of Judah that is a descendant of David. Have you been endeared to the Davidic line after Monday nights? This is a son of David that is being killed precisely because he could not recognize the judgment of God on Ahab's line. Saints, listen to me. We're friends and family. I know your callings. Despite your high calling, whatever it may be, and I know what many of you are called to, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. You could be called to Israel itself. You could be a son of David in this house. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Azahians chose to be friendly with Ahab's line, peaceable at family mealtime, and to try and reconcile with him and care for his wounds. We are called to love what God loves and hate what he hates. Your opinion, my opinion, is entirely irrelevant. But we find the authority, the momentum, the power that we need when we love what He does and stand with Him in what He hates. We want you to have all of God's power today. Look, we've laid some heavy principles on you. Is that true? Uh, I promise you're going to need to reflect on these. Okay? Uh, Say I'm going to reflect on it, Pastor. Reflect on it, Pastor. That allows me to keep moving because the best in this sermon, it really is yet to come. Let's pick up in verse 28. His servants took him by chariot to Jerusalem and buried him with his ancestors in his tomb in the city of David. 
In the eleventh year of Joram, son of Ahab, Azahiah had become king of Judah. Now let's keep going to verse 30. Then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezreel heard about it, no, I'm saying that wrong. Then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she put on eye makeup and arranged her hair and looked out a window. Come on, girls. She got all done up. <laughs> this is exactly what we want to do, what you do with your sin. Look, this is funny. It's a painted Jezebel. It's been in our vernacular for a long time in English history. But this is exactly what we do with sin. When we hear it preached on, we hear Jehu's coming, we hear the sword has arrived. It's not that you put on your magical corona mask. It's that you put your best face forward and it was a great day. Yeah, right. She has been sitting under the judgment of God and refused to root out the sin. So God has sent Jehu to root it out of Israel. When your pastor looks at you, you say, how are you doing? Oh, you know, it was a pretty good day. Liar. Liar. If, if God hadn't spoken to you that day and you hadn't carried out what the Lord said to do that day, if you hadn't visited him and him visited with you, how could it be a good day? You're a man of authority, under authority. How could it be a good day? If you're still trying to recover from the wretched sin that you've been involved in and you're saying it's a pretty good day because you're scared to death somebody's going to look in your eyes and see the uh, garbage that you've been floating around in, then it's really getting to be a worse and worse day because now you're concealing that which is killing you. We're going to get this right in this house. You know what is going to be a good day? Jezebel's going to die in a few verses. I'm oh, I love the, this, this painted Jezebel, this brazen hussy, she's about to become dog food. Okay? And the prophecies are literally going to be fulfilled about her. I want to tell you, never... Never will your sin go unnoticed. I want you to get this. No. Numbers 32, 23 says it will always find you out. We're not the sin police. We don't want to be in the sin management business. No. The reality is the principle of reaping and sowing is true. The thing is, is it will follow you. It will track you down and it will manifest itself in ways you never thought. What we're trying to do is develop a momentum that runs over sinful opposition instead Amen. of sitting around suckling upon it. <laughs> Verse 31. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, have you come in peace? So with this question. Everybody ask him this. Uh, you would think they would start to get the message. I think yeah. it's an assumptive close. Have you come in peace? Uh, uh, you, you dealt with this one sinful area in my heart. Are you coming for another one? Oh my God, I'm going to have to be holy in the land of Israel. It was a mostly peaceful protest. Ah, uh, yes. Those bricks. You know, those bricks kill people, just like guns kill people. Should stop leaving bricks on the road. I think we should ban all bricks. Have you come in peace, you Zimri? Who are we talking to? You Zimri, you murderer of your master. Look, we don't have time at this point to go into all the details of why Jezebel is calling Jehu Zimri. But to give you a small overview, Zimri's the fifth king of Israel. He occupied the throne for only seven days. Zimri had been a military captain who overthrew his king. So apparently the inference that she's making is that Jehu is only going to reign for a little while and that what he's doing is really wrong. Look, this is much like Jehoram crying out treachery when Jehu is showing up to do the will of God. Because it is treacherous to the sinful nature. 
Here, Jezebel is insinuating that Jehu is doing something evil, and more accurately, that he will have a short reign as a king, just like Zimri. That you can do this to me, but God is going to strike you dead for being so harsh in about seven days. She couldn't be more wrong. This is the kind of lies that every man of God has to face. It's astounding the number of times that it comes from family members. It might come from a mother. It might come from an aunt. It might come from a brother that you have considered a brother that should not be. These lies abound, but we must have the same response as Jehu. That we excise the authority of God and hate evil and call good good and ignore the rest of it. Let's get into verse 32. He looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Notice he doesn't wait for an answer. Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Two or three. Maybe we know there's three men. We think two of them are eunuchs. It's a really interesting question here. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down. And some of her blood splattered the wall and the horses as they trampled underfoot. Look, the man of God that is operating under God's authority uses that authority rightly. He commands, who is on my side? And it's a rallying call. To me, the shocking part of this story is that with all the men in Jezreel that should have answered this call, the only ones with the uh, testicular fortitude to stand with God were the ones who were supposed as having had their testicles removed. Dad, you know, it's a little bit like Samson. Sometimes you don't learn to rely on the strength of God until your strength has been removed. That's the truth. It'd be good for some of you. Yeah, I, I kind of <laughs> wish we could do that for a few of you. Maybe put it on ice and give it back when you get married. Yeah, or in a safety deposit box that, you know, only purity will unlock on your wedding day. Saints, what we are doing is raising an army of those who rely on the authority and the power of God. Men of authority and men under authority that have the momentum of righteous actions that are building. We're going to pick back up in verse 34, and this is going to get fun. Jehu went in and ate and drank. (laughs) He was so broken up about this. (laughs) Jehu went in and ate, ate and drank. Yes. Take your head, let's pop a top, son. (laughs) Take care of that cursed woman. Small little misgiving. And he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. They went back and told Jehu, who said this, is the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like dung then on the ground in the plot of Jezreel. So that no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. Not only will it be like dung, if the dogs who devoured her remained in the area, it literally became dung. That's not the part of this that I love though. The part that I love is that Jehu wasn't bothered by carrying out the Lord's will. He didn't need a Christian counselor to make him feel better about it. He wasn't trying to win a popularity contest. He was a man of authority and he operated under authority and he commanded others to live the same way. When he did the will of God, he got it done. And then he ate and drank. And I bet the man slept like a baby. Pastor, that was such a hard word. No, it only seems hard to you because you didn't know the will of God. 
it wasn't hard to me because it was clear to me that it was God's will and I actually feel relieved that I delivered it. But I just, I don't know why it has to be like this all day. Because you don't know God very well. That's, that's really the issue. I do love that when Jehu makes a mistake, because I'm a man who makes mistakes. Of course, if you don't make those, you won't make anything else either. Some of you are so terrified to make a mistake, you don't do anything. And uh, that's not who Jehu is. No. He makes a mistake here, and he buries her. Look how quickly he changed his mind, though. There's no argument. There's no defending his actions. There's no guarded behavior. He remembered the word of the Lord spoken through Elijah, and he declared it right away, even if it meant that he was temporarily wrong. He would rather the word word. be shown as right and him be shown as wrong. That's beautiful. Is there anybody here that wants to yell Jehu? Jehu. Let's pick up in chapter 10 and verse 1. Look, we're going to use the rest of your time very well. I promise that. There is a razor-sharp point on this that is coming because it was born out of prayer. Can y'all hang in there with us for a minute? I mean... If we can't get past an hour and four minutes, then we might as well go back to the Methodist church, right? Amen. Lutheran? No. No. Not not even the prosperity pimps? I just want the unadulterated word of God, and I don't care what it's packaged as. I I want the actual word. Is that what you want? Amen. Now, there were in Samaria 70 sons of the house of Ahab. This is a picture of the prince of this world when you think about it. And the 70 archons that are under his influence. Ahab, a wicked king that God is going to remove, and his 70 sons that are controlling the kingdom that God's people actually live in. Y'all follow me so far? Nod your head. Tell me you're there. All right, now speak out loud. Tell me you're there. Okay. So Jehu wrote letters. And sent them to Samaria, to the officials of Jezreel, to the elders, the guardians of Ahab's children. He said, you have your master's sons with you, and you have chariots and horses, and fortified cities, and weapons. Now as soon as this letter reaches you, choose the best and most worthy of your master's sons. And set him on his father's throne. Then fight for your master's house. Man, I love the word of God. I love that it presents men of God as holy and defiant. That it's expected that you have a confidence that comes from knowing God's will, operating under His authority. Go read about Elijah taunting the prophets of Baal. Listen, we get cowed into being so nice and so fragile and so worthless that you don't accomplish anything. He knows that these men need to die and He doesn't ask for the weakest one. He doesn't show up at night and burn down their altars. He doesn't try to pick a fight with two or three at once. He says, send me the best that you got. You have weapons. You have fortified cities. I've got a chariot and a few men that are willing to die by my side. That's enough because he understands God's will. When you, you Christian, I'm not talking about when you got born again. I'm talking about becoming God's instrument. When you are radically transformed, given a supernatural mission, remain easily correctable. The result is that you will have a supernatural confidence in the God from whom your authority stems. Jehu understood this authority and knew how to operate in it. At this singular word, not the 37 confirmations, the singular word of the Lord, he acted and he fought until the job was done. It reminds me of men like Joshua 
who didn't beg the people to serve the Lord. He told them that they probably wouldn't, they probably couldn't, but that He would. This kind of courage of conviction is inspiring because it causes people to recognize the authority of God and want to walk in it. Joshua wasn't worried that they would hate him and not listen to him. He knew that if he pointed out he had something they didn't, they would be inspired to want it or they would get away. And in both cases, that's a blessing. Jehu possessed a kind of momentum that could not be stopped. And it forced a decision to be made. What kind of momentum do you carry? Does it force a decision to be made? Are you the place that everybody who wants to hang out in the middle ground finds relief in? Jehu was empowered by the momentum and authority that he had carried. He was empowered by the Father, and he knew it. Saints, I want you to be Christians that didn't have an experience with the Lord a long time ago. Men who are operating under authority now can feel his momentum moving, and you know that you're empowered by your father. When you're staring at opposition, when you're staring at Ahab's house, when you're staring at the 70 archon, you know that you're empowered. The reason he was able to approach them this way is because he was familiar. He was confident. He was intimate and close with what had been given. How close are you with the call of God and the father who should be empowering you? Now it's up to them to decide how they wanted to respond. And I genuinely think Jehu was happy either way. They were going to die one way or another. It's just a question of whether or not a few people were going to be in the way. How do you view the call of God in this week with your family, with your workplace, and the opposition that is between you? Is it an insurmountable odd and you're constantly discouraged and you give up on your kids after two spankings? Or does it not matter what is there because your father is with you and you have a momentum and a confidence from his authority because you are his instrument on earth? Anybody... In here like the movie Tombstone? Yes. Really? Three or four of us? It's an old show. I get it. Five of us? Six? Seven? Okay. So, so the rest of you were just scared to respond out loud in church. I, I remember the scene where Billy Bob Thornton walks up and, uh, you know, after he's just got backhanded across the face like the little girl he is. Um, Doc Holliday goes, oh, I apologize. I forgot you were there. Could that be said about you in this church? Oh, it's not so much that you're not here. It's that you're not here while you're here. See, when a man has been anointed of God, when he's given a supernatural mission, when he has authority and he walks under that authority, it's impossible not to notice them. Of course, it's very easy to sit back, not being supernaturally transformed, and be upset with everyone who doesn't gravitate towards you. That's been a problem in this church since the inception of it. And it's not a problem of staffing. It's it's not a problem of communication styles. It's a lack of supernatural transformation in your own lives. See... Um, oh, well, nobody wants to come to my house. Well, I wonder why. I've never had to beg people to come to my house. Well, it's because you're the pastor. Yes, I wasn't always the pastor. I just showed up here a fat salesman. It's the supernatural transformation. It is that you have a mission from God. Now, if you're sitting there and you're like, is he talking about me? Of course I'm talking about you. Because I want you to have a supernatural transformation. 
said, no, no, you're saying I'm not saved and I'm saved. I'm saying you hadn't been transformed enough. Why are you happy where you're at? Why don't you want to set the kind of fire that others are warmed by and cannot wait to be around? Well, because you've learned to celebrate your mediocrity and consider yourself a victim by everybody that doesn't uh, acquiesce to, to your mediocrity. See, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity looks more like Jehu. You get out there, you get it done. Those who want to get it done, go with you. Those that don't, fall beneath you. I mean, it really is that. So you say, no, that's not the gentle lamb that I serve. You're reading the wrong book, man. You, you, you are stuck on an American version of Jesus that the Bible simply doesn't uh, present. Uh, we're going to move forward in this text now. I think I probably got your attention. If I don't, I don't know what else I could do, but I'm willing to try. Uh, please listen to what Judah has to say. But they were terrified and said, if two kings could not resist him, how can we? Short answer to that is you can't. You can't. So the palace administrator, the city governor, the elders, and the guardians sent this message to Jehu. We are your servants, and we will do anything that you say. We will not appoint anyone as king. You do whatever you think is best. Then Jehu wrote them a second letter. If you are on my side and will obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me in Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the royal princes, 70 of them, were with the leading men of the city who were rearing them. When the letter arrived, these men took the princes and slaughtered all 70 of them. They put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jehu and Jezreel. Come on, get, get hold of what's happening here. Both Jehu and Jesus defeated powerful kings. They now demand your obedience and have had letters sent to you, just like this passage, to that effect. It's the Bible sitting in your lap. The only response that either Jehu or Jesus will receive is that you cut the heads off of the archons that have ruled over your lives. If you don't show yourself to be in obedience to him as king, it doesn't matter what you call him. Jehu didn't accept them just saying you're king and will obey you. He wanted to see what they did. Jesus will not accept you saying, Lord, Lord. Yeah, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Only he who does the will of my Father. This is not performance-oriented Christianity. This is real Christianity. Amen. It's Christianity that stems from an actual transformation instead of a pretend one to make church numbers look bigger. I'd rather meet with five righteous people than 500 dogs and five righteous people. Look, I don't want sin to reign in your life. Jesus doesn't want sin to reign in your life. We, we believe that he's creating the momentum to cut the heads off the things that have mastered us. Before we get to verse 8, have you ever had, of course you have, a moment where you realized something was just really not right and you were completely oblivious to it and somebody helped you get it right? With enough retrospect, it's easier for you to be thankful for that. Right now, some of you are getting slapped in the face. And what we are saying to you is that God wishes to bring about a radical transformation in your life right now. Not years ago, not three years in the future, right now. As we read the coming verses, 
We are going to have to put sin to death in our own life to be able to reach archons. You will never reach an archon without dealing with the basic fundamentals. But right now can be a new beginning. Regardless of what your relationship to the kings of Israel were like in the past, the moment that you hear the word of the Lord, and I promise you this was something that God inspired, you respond to it and you become a new man. No more cowardice. No more shrinking back. New man. Verse 8, when the messengers arrived, he, he told Jehu, they have brought the heads of the princes. Then Jehu ordered them, put them in two piles at the entrance of the city gate until morning. The next morning, Jehu went out. He stood before all the people and said, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? Know then that not a word of the Lord, the Lord has spoken against the house of Ahab, will fail. The Lord has done what he announced through his servant, Elijah. Saints, the number of heads and baskets from the things that previously ruled your life is the testimony of Jesus' kingship in your life. Regardless of what happened a long time ago, if you were not collecting new heads on a regular, constant basis, and not repeat... Listen, something doesn't get back up that you cut the head off. We're not talking about managing sin. We're not talking about suppressing sin. The number of heads in baskets from the things that previously ruled your life is the testimony of Jesus' kingship. If there aren't heads in your basket, then He isn't your king. Yeah, that may feel like a tough word, but it's only a tough word if you don't have heads mounted on the wall. See, God's will is that your life displays a twofold witness. Two piles of heads. The ones you already put down through his authority and the ones that are going to fall today because you're walking under his authority. Amen. Your life has to display the truth of God's word. Two piles of heads. Yesterday's pile and what is falling before you today. The Christian is an overcomer, a conqueror of sin. Anyone that is not an overcomer is not a conqueror, is not a Christian. And more transformation is needed. It really is that simple. And the entire book of Revelation is dedicated to that. The issue is, like Ahab's line, like what God is erasing from this story, we live in a Samaritan worship setting yes. where you're being told that's not true every day. But we have letters from Jesus that tell us what the letters of Jehu just said. Cut the head off of sin and pile it up at the city gate if I am actually your king. Do you want Jesus to be your king? Yes. Then we're going to sum up some of the most important aspects right here. We're approaching our closing. This was born out of a beautiful prayer time with the Lord. Because he wants to do beautiful things in you. Now, I'm a pastor. I've said that before, and I didn't mean it. I mean it today. And we're laboring at it for you. We were working on this at midnight. I slept almost not at all. Laboring in prayer. Disturbed in warfare. Because I think today is a different day if you choose for it to be. Amen. I think today, cycles can be broken that have been existent in your life since, well, they've been there so long you've accepted them. Today is a day that we can break free in a new way. God told me he was going to save lives today. 
Let's begin in 2 Kings 10.30. The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. See, when God changes a man, when God changed Ray Ludwigson, when God changed Ibrahim, when he changed Rick, man, I was there right after that. When he changes a man, God expects that man to operate in and under his authority. God also expects that man to invest the same kind of authority in those who are drawn to him. God wants nothing wasted. He extends the generations of men that he changes. Let's show you that. You see Jehu at the top of the slide, his son Jehoash, Joash, Jeroboam, all the way down to Zechariah in the fourth generation. Now later on a foundations evening, we'll tell you more about each of these men's life. But they were given four generations that would sit on the throne in Israel. They weren't of the line of David. The kingdoms were split and they weren't supposed to be. But one man's righteous actions gave four generations the ability to lead Israel rightly if they so chose. Four generations of kings because of the actions of Jehu. Let's take our next slide. Wow, that's difficult to see. But Ahab, in Ahab's time, we're moving from 800, um, 840, let me take it from Jehu's time, 840 B.C., all the way to the fourth generation, Jeroboam II, which is 740 B.C., what we're getting at is they reigned for almost a 100 years. Because of what Jehu did... There were kings in his family for a hundred years. The Lord wants to create momentum in this room, not for a hundred years, but for a thousand years. One that will span continents. One that will depend on what you do from this point forward. Whether you live like Jehu or Ahaziah. See, these are... Important moments in your life. How long can you be around the fire and warmed by it without becoming what it is? Look, there's only two possible outcomes here. You are going to either become what the leaders of this church are, or you're going to be burned by the fire that they carry. That's, that's it. And you enjoy the warmth of what J. Luke, who like tenacity, has built here. But we are laboring for you to become Jehu. That's what we're laboring for. We're closing at this point, but we want to show you at least one more thing that will have an impact on your walk permanently. Let's look at what Jehu does for a guy named Jehonadab. Jehonadab. It's a proper name. It means hath impelled or hath pushed, driven, caused an impression. It was a... Everybody stand to your feet. Stretch your hands up in the air. Mighty God, give them an attention span. Help them to dial in right now. Lord, impress with your spirit upon them these very next few moments. 
Lord, we're asking you to quicken to them the things you've quickened to us so that not one would be lost that you desire to save. Lord, right here, right now, we're committing them to you. In the name of Jesus, sit down and fully engage in these last few sentences. The man's name means impelled. The idea behind it is that something of him from Yahweh was pushing, creating a momentum, a force. I'm going to read to you out of 2 Kings 10 and verse 15. After he left there, he came upon Jehonadab, son of Rechab, who was on his way to meet him. Jehu greeted him and said, Are you in accord with me as I am with you? I am, Jehonadab answered. The reason you're sitting in this room now is because you've seen Jehu like faith and you wanted to be a part of it. The question is, are you in accord with us? Are you in accord with the moving of the Holy Spirit? If so, Jehu said, give me your hand. So he did, and Jehu helped him up into the chariot. Jehu said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Then he had him ride along in his chariot. When Jehu came to Samaria with Jonadab with him, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. The reality is that most of you in this room can scarcely relate to Jehu. You are Jehonadab. You need a hand up into the chariot. That is just the honest assessment of the pastor who's been here the longest. You have no idea where to start despite all of your talk. And because of that, you've settled for a lesser existence than you're supposed to have. You haven't been as serious about actually accomplishing the Lord's will as your talk has been about the Lord's will. Today, we're offering a hand up into the chariot with you. We want you to see the zeal of the Lord and not be satisfied to simply hear about it. Jonadab became something great. Jonadab became a man of authority and struck down the remaining members of the house of Ahab because he took Jehu's hand, because he participated in the zeal, in the walk, in the calling. We happen to be the ones that are speaking today, but the pastoral staff and elders are the ones that are honestly extending their hand to you. They're your pastors. They're your elders. What we're telling you is that you have the opportunity to have a transformation in your life that is more powerful than when you were born again, that you have Christ and an effectual walk in Christ, that you learn what it is to walk under right authority and experience the actual power of God that affects the world around you and not settle for a lukewarm life while sitting in a fired-up church. A word of warning, though. Jehonadab, the man who came in, he had a weight, a pressing that was from God that caused him to respond. Jehu would not have waited there forever. The man had to take the hand and respond to what the zeal of the Almighty God was speaking. I can see in your eyes some of you are in a valley of decision, and that's what this is intended to push you to. I can see others have already fixed their mind that they are going to obey. I'm asking you to consider that our King, our Yahweh Sabaoth, our Redeemer, the one who is able to direct us, give us insight, 
that he will hear the man who rightly relates to authority that God has placed in your life, has wholehearted devotion, and perhaps might even answer and empower that man. The attitude of Jehu was, I'll kill Joram, and I'll kill anybody who's friendly with Joram. That's because Joram was the representation of sin. He's the product of sin and hellishness all around. And anybody that propagates that is an enemy of God. Then he went after Joram's mama, painted Jezebel. And he called to men who were eunuchs, throw her out of the house. And she became dog food and then something else that comes from dogs. Then he went after every Baal worshiper. Then he invited anyone who was in accord with him to fall in behind him or join him in the chariot. That is the kind of life that gets something done for God. No equivocation. No compromise. Such radical transformation that you refuse to live a normal life. That's the hand that's being offered to you today. If you're happy right where you're at, then you probably should not be here at all. Because this is life-changing ministries. This is a ministry that says wherever you stand, God is so much higher than us, there is something more to go after, and He wants you to, and the hand is saying, come up here. In our prayer time, He said He would save lives today. He said he would break the chains that had been not on the lost, on his children in his house, here. We're going to invite you to an experience at the altar. And we're telling you there is not a quitting time today. We have a full worship set planned for this moment. Because the pastors are also believing the Lord said to us He would give life-changing words from their mouths into the ears of people at this altar. We're not forming lines. We're coming to the altar of God to throw ourselves at His mercy and ask for His empowerment. And I know for certain that supernatural things will happen right here. The only question is for whom it will happen. This is like God knowing that He has 7,000 that will not bow the knee to Baal. But who the 7,000 are, well, that's always been up to you. Would you stand to your feet now? Father, as Your people approach You, Lord, we have made bold claims about You, and we know that they are true. Lord, I'm asking if that sweet presence that came and instructed us would come and instruct these brave people. Lord, we need that radical transformation. We need that supernatural mission. Mighty God, we need that holy momentum. Come and meet with us here. Rush in to those that are hungry for you. Lord, we choose You. And we're saying, light the altars of our hearts on fire. We choose You. And we want the anointing oil of God. We choose You, Mighty One. And we want the will to carry out with diligence and speed Your directives. We want to be centurions that take you at your word 
and display great faith. Lord, as much as the people are repenting, we're asking for more than a turning from what's wrong. We're asking for empowerment for what is righteous. Hear us from heaven and answer us as we pray, as we cry out to you, for this was your will, Lord. May your will be done right here as you spoke it to us from the heavens.